my grandmother uh, put her faith in Jesus as uh, a young girl. I have some pictures of her uh, here. I, I don't know exactly when they was, were taken, probably in the 1930s. She was a teenager, and um, she uh, was raised in New England, not from a Christian home. Uh, she, I remember her telling stories about how when um, traveling Christian evangelists would come to the door and knock on their door, her father would sort of angrily slam the door. You know, we don't want any of that here. Uh, that was the, the world she was growing up in as a young woman. Um, but she became a Christian because a friend of hers uh, invited her to church, to a youth, a youth event, and there she heard the gospel. She heard about Jesus, about grace, about salvation. She placed her trust in the Lord, and really from that point forward, her life um, honored the Lord. This is a picture, I'm guessing they were in their 20s, of her and my grandfather. Some of you may have met him. He's been here. He's 90. Um, and so, uh, so thankful for them and, and their spiritual legacy in my family. I remember my grandmother's 80th birthday party. It was like a family reunion celebrating her life. And um, at that party, this is in 2005, uh, she reminisced about her younger days. And she was talking about uh, wondering about God and these big questions she had about faith from seven decades earlier. And I remember she described being uh, a girl looking, laying in the grass, looking up at the sky. This isn't a time before phones, uh, where kids actually went outdoors. And so she's laying in the grass, looking up at the clouds and thinking, is God in that cloud? Is he in that cloud? And just wondering, you know, where, where is God? What, you know, who is he? Um, and now my son Luke, her great-grandson, uh, asks me the same kind of questions. He's going into kindergarten this, um, this fall, and, and so he asks me those kinds of things. You know, where, where is God? And he's really into, like, space and the solar system right now. And so, you know, where is God? You know, is he on Mercury? It might be too hot for him there, but maybe he's on Mercury <laughs> And I think, I think we all ask that kind of question on some level. You know, where is God? Where does he actually dwell? Sometimes we mean that in kind of a literal way, like literally where does God reside? But then I think there's also some kind of non-literal forms of that question. Often when we're struggling with something or going through a tragedy, you know, God, where are you? You're not, you don't seem to be where I think you should be. And so we have those kinds of moments. But I think that question of where is God is sort of a fundamental question of our faith. It affects our view of God. It affects our uh, relationship with him. And out in the air of our culture is this idea that God is kind of, you know, like far away. He's like Zeus on Mount Olympus, you know, kind of peering down on us. There's that kind of uh, picture or, you know, in the words of the celebrated theologian Bette Midler, God is watching us from a distance. Some of you chimed in on that. I, I heard it. It's that idea. He's, God's kind of far off. And it's a popular idea. And it shows up in a million subtle ways. And it's not biblical. And so we ask this question, like, where is God? It's an important question. It's the question we're going to approach today. I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is the question we're going to approach today. Where is God and why does it matter? Where is God, and why does it matter? And the prophet Haggai is going to help us 
begin to answer this question. Um, So if you brought your Bible with you, open up to the book of Haggai. Here's a layout of Scripture. If you're unfamiliar with the layout, Haggai is one of the last few books of the Old Testament. Um, We have Bibles on the tables. Uh, By the way, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home. We have highlighters in the baskets um, and pens. You can take notes, mark those Bibles up. Um, and, and I'll uh, cue you into some of that as we go through Scripture today. Um, but just a couple minutes on sort of background before we get into to Haggai. Um, Haggai was writing, he was a prophet. The prophets spoke for God to his people, the Israelites. And um, Haggai, uh, the book of Haggai deals with a time when the Israelites are moving back to their homeland, Israel, after having been exiled. They had spent time in exile to the east in Babylon. Um, For generations, the Israelites were turning their back on God. They were worshiping other gods. And God was warning them, warning them, warning them, turn back to me, turn back to me, and they were not. And so God allowed these powerful nations, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, to attack um, Israel and exile uh, his people. And so they had been in exile. Here's a little chronology, just sort of, you know, overview of kind of the Old Testament period. You had all these years of the kingdom of Israel where they're living in the promised land. There's all these kings of Israel. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians came in and and defeated them. And their strategy militarily was we're going to conquer you and then we're going to kick you out of your own land to control you. We're going to force you to live in an area that doesn't even speak the same language. And, And so the Israelites were all exiled for about 70 years. And then they returned in 539 B.C., um, this is a well-documented historical event, this man, Cyrus, came to power. He was Persian, Cyrus of Persia. Um, this is some archaeological record of how the Persians depicted him. Um, and he came to power and basically defeated everybody. The Persian Empire was the, the most vast empire that had ever existed uh, at the time that he came to power. Here's a map of the Persian Empire went all the way from, from modern India all the way through modern Turkey, and even they started to try to attack the Greeks and take over. It didn't quite succeed there. Uh, but it was just this vast empire. And Cyrus, the Persian, had a little different foreign policy. He, he didn't subscribe to this idea that you can't live in your homeland. He said, no, go home. Israelites, it's fine. You can go back to your homeland. I'll even help you finance rebuilding the city. That's fine. You just need to be loyal to me, pay your taxes. If I ask you to go to war, you're going to war. It was that kind of arrangement. So the Israelites are moving back into their homeland after having been exiled. And they're kind of picking up the pieces of their former life, trying to rediscover their relationship with God, rebuild their cities. It it was just a time, a very, a time of upheaval, just kind of cultural confusion. And it's in that moment that Haggai is speaking to the people of Israel for God. And and he had a specific task. And Haggai's task was this, to encourage the people of Israel to rebuild the temple. Because the temple in Jerusalem, where they had historically worshipped God, where God was believed to dwell, had been obliterated by the Babylonians. It was just rubble. And so Haggai is, is, is there with the people of Israel as they're coming home, rebuilding their life, and he is going to encourage them, you've got to rebuild the temple. Um, and this is really going to be our jumping off point for answering the question, where is God? So let's get into it. Haggai 1.1, it says this. In the second year of King Darius, he is one of the Persian emperors, 
On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of uh, Josadak, the high priest. Now we're going to stop there. I want you to, if you're taking notes, circle three names. Haggai, he's the prophet, Zerubbabel, and Joshua. He's, he's, there's a lot of names there because they would refer to people by who their father was, but there's really three important people here. There's Haggai, who's the prophet speaking for God, and he's really talking to the two power players in Israel, the political power, which was Zerubbabel. He's the governor. And the religious power, Joshua, he was the high priest. So Haggai's talking to the governor and the high priest, and he's got this message from God. So let's see what this message is. Let's keep going. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And I would highlight this next, uh, the rest of this verse if you're taking notes. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Skip down to verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring down timber, and build my house. Highlight that. Build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So, so God, through Haggai, is telling these two authority figures, he's kind of calling them out a little bit. Hey, hey, I, I know you're busy, but you keep delaying building my house, the temple, where I'm going to dwell in your midst You've got plenty of time, apparently, to build your own house, and you've got all the tile you want and paneled walls, and like, you got, you're nailing that. But my house is still a pile of rubble. You need to get your priorities straight. That's basically what God is saying through, through Haggai. Because it was just really important, because historically, in Israel, God dwelled among them in a specific place. Um, this started way back centuries earlier in the time of Moses, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God commanded they build something called the tabernacle. Some of you may be familiar with this. This is an artist's rendering of what the tabernacle was. It was essentially a very fancy tent. A portable temple is, is really what it was. And the Israelites carried it around with them place to place. The, the tabernacle was in the middle of their camp. And this was where God's presence dwelled in the, what was called the Holy of Holies. And the high priest is the only one who could go in there at certain times. And this, is, this was the meeting place where God said, I'm here if you want to worship me and commune with me. Here I am. I'm in the, the tabernacle. Fast forward a little later when the Israelites finally move into the promised land. King David's son Solomon built an actual temple. Here's an artist's rendering of that. Solomon's temple. It's kind of a see-through version there. It didn't actually have a hole in the roof. Um, Solomon's temple was built in the 900s BC, and it was, it was essentially had the same function as the tabernacle. It was just permanent, and it was in Jerusalem. This is believed, you know, this is where God dwelled. This is where you would go do the sacrifices and worship God in various ways. So if you were an Israelite living in ancient Israel, and someone said to you, where is God? You would say, in the temple in Jerusalem. That's where his presence dwells. That was the answer to the question for them. But that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, just flattened. And they went into exile. And they're coming back now in, in Haggai's day. And God is saying, hey, you've got to rebuild this temple. 
This is a really big deal. This is where God had historically dwelled, in this locale. And so God's telling the authorities, it's time to rebuild this. So let's see how they respond. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, and then highlight this phrase, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Highlight those words, I am with you. So, so they're going to obey uh, his word. They're going to begin rebuilding the temple. And he says, I'm with you. You're not on your own on this. And this is a really comforting thought for them because this is a rough time for them. I mean, this is kind of a depressing season. They come back to this city. It's just the walls are knocked down. It's, you know, it's just rubble. The temple is flattened. There were some priests who were old enough that they remembered Solomon's temple. And now the new temple they're rebuilding is way smaller and more plain. And they actually wept because they could remember its former glory. And it was just like, this doesn't even compare. It was, it, was, so it was a tough time, and God is reassuring them, encouraging them, saying, I'm with you in this. So just keep going. Keep rebuilding my house. Let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, On the 21st day of the seventh month, seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them... Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Would you uh, highlight or circle those three instances of be strong? He repeats it. He says it to the governor. He says it to the high priest. And he says to all the people, be strong. Be strong and do the work. And then he continues again by saying, for I am with you. Highlight that if you're taking notes. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And highlight this phrase, my spirit remains among you. My spirit remains remains among you. So God is saying to this political leader, the religious leader, and all the people, be strong in this difficult time. Uh, Don't be discouraged. Build my house. I'm with you. You're not alone. And then he says this amazing statement I had you highlight at the end. My spirit remains among you. That's remarkable because they have not yet built the temple. So they're thinking, we've got to build the temple and then God will be with us. And he's saying, my spirit remains among you, even though there is no longer a temple standing. And this is a reminder that even though the temple was the main place to go worship God, his spirit is not bound by brick and mortar. It's not like he's not present with Israel because the temple doesn't stand. He's saying, I'm present with you, even though there's no temple. There's no need to fear. You know, in previous generations, the Israelites had kind of turned the temple into a little bit of a lucky charm, you know? They, they started to kind of revere the temple more than the God who resided in the temple. And God is kind of reminding them here, no, no, no. You know, 
I'm not, you know, that temple doesn't rule me. You know, I, as an offering of my grace, allowed you to build this temple so you could know where to come and meet me. But I'm here. And that's what he's telling them. And I think we tend to find ourselves thinking that way. We think of the church as a building or a meeting place. It's a location and instead of the people, which is how the church is described in Scripture. Uh, we tend to think God is only showing up in certain places at certain times or that he's just not personally present with us as we go through our lives. Um, but God wants us to understand that he is with us. And he was telling the Israelites back then, you know, even as you're building my temple, my spirit remains among you. And this was just a glimpse. What he was telling the people in Haggai's day, just a glimpse of what we would see of God's presence because of Jesus. And so I want to jump off from here and look to the New Testament and see how the, the, the trajectory of all this and how it culminated in the life of Christ. Um, we're going to go through several scriptures in the New Testament. You don't need to turn there. I'll have them on the screens. Uh, but by the time of the New Testament, by the time of Jesus's life, that second temple that Haggai and the people of that generation were building, that second temple was expanded dramatically. Here's a picture of it, um, especially in the decades leading right up to Jesus's birth. Um, It became known as Herod's Temple because King Herod, who was the king of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, he was renowned as a builder. And so he just turned the temple, what started out in Haggai's day as this plain little thing. It just became this monstrosity uh, by the time of Christ's life. And um, today, if you go to visit Israel, the foundation of that temple is still there. Um, The Temple Mount is built on that. Um, So it, it was just a gigantic structure. And that temple, the second temple, was the setting of many events in Jesus's ministry. Um, on one occasion, uh, he went into the temple and Jesus basically saw it had been turned into a mall. And he was not okay with this. And it says in the Gospel of John, he made a whip of cords. Jesus saw this and was like, oh no, that's, no, no I don't think so. And he, he literally weaves together what he can find and just starts physically whipping people to get them out of the temple. People who are changing money and selling things and just commercializing the temple where people were coming to meet with God. Jesus just wasn't going to stand for it. This is not a popular aspect of Jesus's ministry to talk about, but it's absolutely true. He wasn't going to stand for that. And so he does this dramatic thing where he, he, he drives out all these people in the temple who are making it this commercialized perversion of what it's meant to be. And these religious leaders go, whoa, whoa, what are you, who are you? you? You can just do this? Show us a sign that proves you have the right to come in here and do this. Because remember, Jesus was not part of the religious establishment. He was not a priest. He was not a well-known rabbi in Jerusalem. He's just some guy from Galilee. And these priests are like, show us a sign that you have the right to do this. And I want to show you how he replied in John 2. Jesus answered them. Here's the sign I'm going to show you. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They're talking about the renovations that Herod did. 46 years, and and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture in the words that Jesus had spoken. So the temple, historically, for generations, had been the place that people would come to to encounter the Lord, to worship him. And now Jesus 
is referring to himself, his body as the temple. And, and what he was communicating in that moment is he himself would be the new way to know and encounter God directly, personally, not just in this one locale, not mediated by a priest, directly. Jesus came to offer direct personal access to God through himself. And on the eve of his crucifixion, he had this conversation with his disciples in John 14, and Jesus said this. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus said when he finished his earthly ministry that the Holy Spirit was going to come and continue his work. And did you notice how it referred to the Spirit as him and he throughout that passage? He's not an it. He's not a ghost, an impersonal force. It's God's personal presence, the Spirit. And Jesus was saying he's going to come dwell within us. Just like God had told Haggai and the people of Israel five centuries before, the Spirit is among them. But now Jesus is saying, Spirit's not just going to be among you. Something new is going to happen. He's going to dwell within you, within those who know him. The direct, personal, perpetual presence of God. You don't have to go find God. He came to find you and made his dwelling with you, within you. And so this idea of God indwelling us by his spirit was a huge part of the early teaching of uh, Christianity in the first century. I love this scene in Acts 17 when Paul, the Apostle Paul first brings the message of Jesus to Athens, which was like the heart of all intellectual thought in the Roman world. All the philosophies, everything comes together in Athens, and, and Paul shows up and starts talking about Jesus. And look what he says in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul was bringing this message that, you know, God is not contained in this, you know, temple that you built. He indwells us because of Jesus. It's this amazing truth. And in Colossians, Paul talks about Christ dwelling in us through his spirit and how it's the hope of glory, he calls it. God dwelling within us. He doesn't need temples. They don't contain him. He is dwelling within us. And by the way, dwelling within us is not a step down. You can look at those amazing temple structures and think, wow, look how grandiose God was dwelling there. And now he's like dwelling in little old me. Like that's kind of a step down, isn't it? But if you rewind back to the creation account, what was God's masterpiece of creation? It was us. We are created in his image. And he makes his dwelling within us. So God is dwelling within us. But what about heaven? Isn't God in heaven? We think, when we think about where is God, we think about him being in heaven. Yes, the answer is yes to that too. And there's many places in scripture that talk about that. I'll read just two verses in Hebrews that explain this. Uh, the writer said this, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and, and so God dwells, yes, in the heavenly realms. However that looks, <laughs> we'll find out. But yes, God is there, uh, but he is also personally, spiritually present with each of us through his spirit, anyone who knows Christ. And that's, it's a little mysterious. I, I'm not going to pretend I know exactly how that works, but both are true. He rules from heaven, and he's also personally present with us. That's the answer uh, to the question that we kind of threw out at the beginning. Uh, God rules the universe from heaven, and his spirit dwells, and I actually meant that to say within. His spirit dwells within us. He rules from heaven, and his spirit dwells within us. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter? If God is in you and perpetually with you, it gives hope. This is what the New Testament writers were saying all the time. You are never alone. God is never far away. He is always there, guiding you, transforming you from the inside out. He's not watching at a distance with his arms folded going, let's see, you know, what kind of person you are, and then I'll determine if I'm going to help you out in your life. That is not the picture. He loves you. He proved it by giving his life, and Jesus spent, sent his spirit to anyone who placed their faith in him to guide us, to grow us, draw us closer to himself. That's the truth. Now, if we're honest, we don't always feel like that's true. We don't always feel like God is perpetually with us, do we? Especially if we're suffering, going through something difficult, or we make a mistake, or we sin, and we just think, okay, did did I just jeopardize my relationship with God? Is he, like, on a vacation now because I just made him mad? We think these things. We wonder. But when we think about where God is, we kind of have to stop thinking sort of geographically and start thinking spiritually. He is spiritually present with his people, indwelling us regardless of how we feel we're doing. That's the truth. And we have to trust that it's true and believe it and, and not uh, give our feelings and emotions, you know, scriptural authority as if they're true. But we easily do that. You know, think about it this way. Uh, I'm assuming everybody in this room has a beating heart right now. Uh, if you don't, you know, I don't know if we have any vampires in the, in the midst, but we all have a beating heart. Um, our heart is in there beating whether or not we are aware of it. And there it is doing its job, moment by moment, day after day, year after year. It's there, and we don't even think about it. And if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit similarly is inside of you doing his work regardless of how aware you are of it. He is there, giving life, giving guidance, growing us, shaping us into the image of Jesus. That's what we are told. That's what Jesus said. God is personal and personally present within us through his spirit. Now, I want to read just a few verses uh, from Romans 8, because I think Paul explains why this is all a big deal a lot better than I would. So I'm just going to read a few verses, amazing passage about the magnitude of what it means for his spirit to dwell inside of us. Paul says this, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, 
And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So I want to just emphasize and highlight here for you all the mentions of His Spirit and living in us in just those few verses. It's just packed with this message. Paul's driving this point home that God dwells in us by his spirit. Even though we sin and even though we inhabit a broken world, even though we will one day die because of our physical frailty, the spirit dwells within us and that spirit who raised Christ from the dead will also raise us to new life. The creator who rules from heaven and also indwells in us. He's not, you know, off on some mountaintop. He's not in a cloud. He's not on mercury. No, he lives within us. He indwells us. Jesus died not just to stamp our past to heaven one day, but to offer his personal presence now. Indwelling us. So how does this change us? What difference does this make in our life as we deal with all kinds of challenges and struggles. It should fundamentally change our outlook on who God is, who we are, and what this life is meant to be. And the early Christian leaders were just hammering this point home over and over. When you start cluing into this subject, God's personal presence with us, you see it everywhere in the New Testament. And I think if I had to pick one of the places where it's most beautifully articulated, it would be in Ephesians. I'm just going to close with this, just a few verses. Um, because Paul articulates um, in just, I just think, such poetic words. He articulates what really has been offered to us. God dwelling within us, personal presence. He talks about why this is such a big deal. And, and really, it boils down to this. God's presence with us, indwelling us, personal presence, gives us a deep soul-level knowledge that we are loved. And that fills us with hope. So I'm going to read these few verses, and then we're going to close. Paul says in Ephesians 3, this is his prayer for the Christians in his day and for us. Paul said, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.